Welcome to another episode of Minds of Medicine, a podcast that delivers physician stories while providing insight into the various fields of medicine, with the hope that we inspire the next generation of medical professionals. As always, I'm your host, Sonny, and today's guest is going to be Dr. Catherine Fetter. Dr. Fetter is a head and neck surgical oncologist that specializes in microvascular and robotic surgery. If that sounds incredible, it's because it is. During the episode, we learn about her journey to medicine, what an ENT does, and we touch on what it's like being in a male-dominant field. I'm really excited for you all to hear this episode. But first, run the intro. Dr. Fetter, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, I really wanted to dive in and uh, hear about how what your journey to medicine looked like. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, it's interesting. I feel like I always wanted to be a doctor. I can't really remember wanting to be anything else. Um, I think it was the uh, the reverence that's given to the profession that initially drew me in and the opportunity to really help people and have an impact on people's lives. Um, but also I wanted to be a surgeon from very early on. Um, I knew that for sure. And I think I have to give credit to my dad for that. Um, I know you mentioned you have a background in engineering. My dad was an engineer and always had me out tinkering with something around the house, building something, breaking it, fixing it. Um, And so it was just so fun for me to um, kind of recognize a problem, try and think it through, and then fix it with your hands. And the thought that you could do that in medicine was just so exciting to me. And so... Um, you know, surgery always intrigued me. The, uh, you know, you get to be a doctor and help people and, and give back and make an impact. Um, but to be able to get that instant gratification of seeing a problem and figuring out a way to fix it with your hands and, and the tools that you have was just awesome. And I can't imagine doing anything else. That's awesome. I, I, I love hearing that because it, it really takes you back to like how you would have never guessed at that point you would have ended up as a surgeon in in that case you just loved building things and doing things with your hand i'm curious to know why you ended up choosing academic medicine yeah so i think um it's for a couple of reasons the first which is the most important and drew me in um i think the strongest was the opportunity to work with different learners fellows, residents, medical students um, on a daily basis. I mean, honestly, there's really not a clinic or an operating room that does not have someone in it learning. And that just seems so normal to me at this point, so natural that I really can't imagine doing my job without having that around just because it seems like as I'm working, I'm supposed to be teaching. That's just part of what we do. Um, and I really enjoy that. So the opportunity to work with, you know, we work with residents so closely that I think that's the biggest thing that draws you, but then getting to um, have the opportunity to get medical students interested in ENT is also um, really exciting. And so I really enjoy doing that. Um, I think aside from that, you know, what I do with head and neck surgery um, and working with a lot of cancer patients, it's also really 
easy to do that kind of work in an academic setting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the support of a big institution and a name like UVA, you, you can offer multidisciplinary cancer care and really feel like you're giving patients the best recommendations and the best that there is to offer. Um, you have all, you know, all these brilliant people around you pushing you to um, do your best. And, and so I think that, that specifically what I do lends itself to academic medicine. And then just on a day-to-day basis, the types of surgeries that I do require quite a bit of support um, in the operating room and then very you know complicated post-operative care and so again that's something that i think lends itself to academic medicine these you know bigger more complicated cancer surgeries it's just um natural to to be in this environment and have that support i'm definitely going to bring up the surgeries you do and i i guess the tools you use but i want to go back for a second to something you mentioned in that talking about how uh, getting medical students interested in ent how were you how did you become interested in ent um, so, you know, I mentioned that I wanted to do surgery for a long time. And so the luxury of that was when I started medical school, it was a little bit easier for me to focus on trying to tease out what type of surgery I wanted to do. I know a lot of students start and they're, you know, very open mind and, um, it can be challenging to narrow it down because things are Lots of things are really fun and intriguing. Um, and so, you know, I spent most of my time trying to figure out what type of surgery made the most sense for me. Um, I thought neurosurgery for a long time. I did most of my research in medical school in that. Um, but then I feel like you really get an idea of what works for you once you start to spend time on services and do clerkships, things like that. Um, and uh, to be honest, my... Um, my moment where it clicked was when I realized that the most mundane or the most, uh, yeah, I guess mundane or common surgery that ENTs were doing were really exciting and fun. And so as I just started to think about that, as I tried out, I guess, different types of surgery was what's like the most basic thing that they do and could I do that all day every day for the rest of my life and not get bored so you know I mean with ENT I saw early on you know someone getting a tracheostomy placed and ear tubes and things like that and I thought it was really cool and so I (laughs) that's the advice that I've given students moving forward when they're trying to decide on different surgical specialties is try and find the most boring surgery or like mundane surgery that you can think of in that specialty. Boring is probably the wrong word. Um, And uh, see, you know, if that excites you and you could see yourself doing that forever, then that probably works. If it's already something that you're not excited about as a medical student, that's probably not going to be something that you get excited about waking up for in 20 years. That's really true. That's that's actually great advice. Uh, I think it was also really nice, at least from my perspective, and I'm sure a lot of the audience will agree, uh, to hear that you were interested in something initially, and then you ended up in something different. Because I feel like for a lot of us, there's this like unsung pressure to kind of know what you want to do, or at least with peers or, or mentors. Like, um, but it's really good to hear. <laughs> it's always good to hear stories about people not or who were interested in one thing and then completely changed. Yeah, I don't think I really made the decision until between just between my third and fourth year, so it felt pretty late, actually. 
Um, but you know, I think once everyone says that it clicks eventually, and it really does. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I thought of a couple different types of surgery before really finding that ENT was really the one that worked. So, um, it's, it's easy to get stressed out about it in medical school, I know, but it, it worked out for the best. So you were a medical student um, going into uh, or a male-dominant field. I think the last stat I saw was like 14.5% of ENTs are, are, are women. What did that mean to you, um, and how have you kind of overcome some of those hurdles? Um, you know, I think um, I didn't think about it as much, um, to be honest, when I was going into the field. Um, because luckily, actually, a lot of residencies now are pretty... Um, evenly split. You know, our residency here is basically half and half women and men, and the residency that I went to was basically half and half as well. Um, and so I think, you know, as a medical student, I was looking a little bit more, kind of luckily, toward the residents and what my life was going to be like working with them day in and day out. And I saw a little bit more representation in terms of uh, more women being involved. Um, that has obviously been much slower from the, um, you know, practicing otolaryngologists and faculty um, positions. There's definitely, it's definitely still male-dominated for sure, especially in academic medicine. And that's across the board with surgery. Um, and so, you know, I think um, my, uh, the biggest thing for me early on was um, establishing really strong relationships with female mentors that were faculty at my residency program um, who really, you know, took me under their wing and um, helped me with, uh, you know, development over the course of residency in terms of research opportunities and, and just pushing me to, um, to really be as successful as I could be, um, and just, you know, by, uh, being strong faculty and successful, um, uh, examples to look up to who were getting promoted and had leadership positions, things like that. That was a huge, um, uh, example for me when I was doing my training. Um, and so I think the, the, luckily, again, since residencies are, you know, medical schools are at least divided with men and women and, mm -hmm. and some at this point are majority female. And so it's nice that that's starting to trickle into residency and it's starting to change in, in faculty positions and in academic medicine. And so I think the more that we... Um, are able to mentor women coming into surgical fields and be mentored. That's mm -hmm. clearly the, you know, the biggest um, supporting factor, I think, in getting more women, rep more female representation in yeah. ENT. That representation, I think, matters no matter what, what field. Yeah. Um, but it, it's also nice to hear because you were mentioning why you liked academic medicine, and that really highlights, or, or your answer right there just kind of highlights the mentorship that you can provide um, and that, that's really pivotal in, in academic medicine. Um, I do want to kind of take a uh, bird's eye view of what a day in your life looks like right now. Yeah, so um, 
Uh, it can be a little hectic to start out with because I have a two-year-old. So mornings are a little, can be a little crazy um, trying to get um, a toddler ready for daycare in the morning. So um, uh, a bit of a scramble there. Um, but once that is dealt with, uh, then, you know, operative days for me start around, you know, the OR usually starts around 7.30, so I'm getting to the hospital around 7, 7.15, and um, the bigger surgeries that I do can be one surgery that lasts all day, um, or it can be a day that's split up into four or five smaller surgeries that you're doing. Um, it's extremely variable, but... Um, it's really just kind of nonstop during the day. And the, the thing with surgery is you never can really predict when they're going to end. So you don't really know when your day is through. Um, so try and end up somewhere between four to seven or eight, depending on kind of how things go. Um, and then home for uh, hopefully bedtime if I make it home for my son's bedtime. Um, and then taking it easy and, and finishing up any work and things like that and hanging out with the fam. Um, clinic days are a little bit um, uh, more relaxed. Um, those can start between 8 and 9 in the morning. And then um, you, you know, I, I work over at the cancer center, and so we see patients um, over there. And um, it's really just, you know, kind of nonstop seeing patients in the morning and and usually um, a full day of clinic will see somewhere between uh, around 20 to 30 patients depending on type of patient and and um, how busy the day is and then usually um, uh, and and those days I try to pick up my son and make it home um, and uh, occasionally cook dinner and have a nice night again with the family and take it easy. Yeah, it really sounds like, you know, more than anything, it's just about finding that balance mm -hmm. and being adaptable with that balance. Uh, I'm curious to know, what what exactly is a clinic day for you? Is it more so like consult, pre-ops? What does it look like? Um, so it's a pretty good mix between seeing um, patients who are new referrals, um, from outside providers and then follow-up patients. So um, I mentioned that I do a lot of cancer care. And so when you have head and neck cancer, um, we it, it's rewarding from the physician standpoint because you get to know that patient pretty well and we actually follow them for five years after their treatments complete um, to look for any signs of recurrence just for normal cancer surveillance. And so um, I see a lot of those patients during the day and often they're on a first name basis and um, checking in on their families and seeing how they're doing. So, so those can be really um, rewarding visits. But then intermixed in there, you know, as a at a tertiary facility like this, we get a lot of referrals from community physicians and from um, uh, regional otolaryngologists who have new cancer patients or more complicated head and neck um, benign patients who they want us to consult on. Um, and sometimes that's just giving our opinion and a lot of times it's sort of taking over care and and um, either counseling patients on their problems and um, giving recommendations or setting them up for surgery. So it, it can be a mix and that's what makes it nice because it's it's always something a little bit different. Um, I think, you know, we 
we tend to be a pretty busy service, so a lot of the patients that we see in clinic end up needing surgery, so there's a lot of discussion of what surgery involves and preoperative workups and evaluations, those sorts of things. So there's never a dull day in a head and neck clinic. <laughs> it's nice to know also that you get that longitudinal care. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not just like you're operating on a patient and then you n n don't really hear from them again, but you really get to uh, continue their care. So that's, that's really nice to hear, especially from the surgery aspect. Um, so what I've been really itching about when, when I was reading your bio is talking about, uh, so you're trained in the Da Vinci system. Mm -hmm. Could you give us an overview of what that means? Yes, yeah, so Da Vinci is a robotic system that has been used by multiple different um, specialties to allow for a more minimally invasive approach to surgery. Um, and within the head and neck world, um, the mouth is a very small space, and so one of the most common things that we see are cancers in the mouth and the back of the throat. Um, and when you're trying to gain access to those areas, the um, classic way to do that has been, has often required what we call open approaches, which mean um, making incisions through the outside, through the neck, sometimes actually having to split the jawbone to gain access to the back of the throat um, to remove cancer surgically. So actually the progression of treatment uh, trended away from those open types of surgeries and toward non-surgical therapies like radiation and chemo um, to treat tumors in certain areas just because the access was so difficult and the, the types of surgeries required were more morbid than um, you would like. And so um, the Da Vinci system has sort of revolutionized how we manage certain types of cancers, specifically in the back of the throat, like around the back of the tongue and the tonsil, because instead of having to do these very large open approaches from the get-go, we can use um, robotic instrumentation to gain access to that. What that means is, um, you know, the system is um, made up of small arms and a camera that can fit into small spaces. So in other services, they're used to gain access through very small incisions into the belly um, to do different types of minimally invasive surgery. So for us, that means instead of trying to get our hands and different instruments in the mouth, we can use the small camera and these small robotic arms with different surgical instruments on them to actually um, gain access to the very back part of the throat, the top of the voice box, and see very well um, what we're looking at, where a tumor starts and stops. And then by having those small instruments back in this very tight, complicated anatomic area, you can use that um, uh, device to, um, well, the whole system, you can control it um, and control the arms through a separate console and actually take out an entire cancer um, through the, just going through the mouth and using the, the system and get a really good result. And it has just, like I said, revolutionized how we manage cancers in that area. Wow. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's amazing because it, it just provides you, it's, it's more so like the vessel that allows you to really operate at your, at your max. Um, so, so you're trained in that. And I want, I want to talk about your training process. So you, you, college, medical school, you graduate medical school, and then you start a residency. Mm -hmm. 
how long was the residency and then what was the process like after to get to where you are? Yes, yeah, so um, uh, after medical school residency and for ENT, that's five years for general ENT. Um, and then you can choose whether you want to do a fellowship after that, which I did. And I did that in head and neck oncologic and microvascular surgery, which is basically where you focus on um, the complete breadth of managing the more complicated aspects of head and neck cancer patients. And so some of those fellowships, the majority of those are one year, um, but they can range from one to three years depending on um, if you want to focus on re more research and things like that. So I did a one-year fellowship at the University of Miami, and that included um, training in robotic surgery, so doing formalized training in that and proctored cases to learn how to do that. And then also um, microvascular surgery, which is one of the more unique things that we do as well. Um, you know, head and neck cancer surgeries require removal of um, critical structures a lot of the time. Um, and when that area that's been removed is large enough, you can't just sort of sew the edges together. You have to replace that tissue with something from somewhere else. So one of the um, cooler things that we do as part of our surgery is um, take tissue from another part of the body and actually um, transplant that up into the head and neck area and, and um, sew it to blood vessels in the neck so it has its own blood supply and it can be used to replace part of the tongue, part of the jawbone, part of the skin of the face, pretty much anything you could think of. And so, as you can imagine, that requires extra training. So that was a lot of that additional year as well, was learning how to do that microvascular um, work. And so um, that's the extra year. And then I have been here at UVA ever since. Wow, that's, that's incredible. I had no idea about the microvascular uh, and w what that actually meant. Um, so that was awesome to hear, and it's just kind of, it's just kind of breathtaking to, to understand, like you already said, like the breadth of what you're, you're capable of. Um, we've talked a lot about what you do inside the hospital. We've kind of touched a little bit about what you do outside, but what do you like to do uh, outside the hospital to more so, you know, keep yourself safe? Yeah. Um... I mean, it's rare that you actually feel like you have enough time to read for leisure, but I really do love to read. Um, so if I do get a chance, then then I enjoy that. Um, I love cooking and entertaining, so I like to, um, you know, kind of try different recipes and things. Charlottesville is wonderful for food and drink, and so kind of exploring the different restaurants and breweries and vineyards around this area. Um, I really enjoy doing that with my family. Um, and like I mentioned, I have a two-year-old and he's great. He's a crazy man, but it's interesting or it's fun to, to hang out with him and, and do anything outdoors with him that I can um, try to hike and things like that, um, which is great in this area yeah. as well. Yeah, my brother is, uh, my brother and my sister-in-law are expecting in a little over a month. That's and, awesome. Like, I'm so excited. <laughs> Yeah, it is definitely a roller coaster, but, um, you know, that's been kind of one of the the best things that's ever happened to me, yeah. is having having a son, and he's great, and so we, we um, get to have fun adventures, which is great. 
Yeah, and you, you, I feel like you just always have a ball of energy around. Oh my gosh, yes. Definitely keeps me on my toes, that's for sure. <laughs> I love to hear that. I love that so much. Um, I do want to kind of uh, come to a close with what, if, if you could go back in time and give yourself, give your medical student self a piece of advice, what would that be? Um, you know, I think I... Interestingly, it has to do with how, how I learned in medical school, um, which I reflect on because now I, I like to think about how our residents learn and how our medical students learn now. Um, I got into the habit of cramming and memorizing, um, which I could do well in medical school, but um, developed pretty bad habits for learning and um, really kind of, you know, bad habits in terms of creating um, a, a routine for how I was going to become a lifelong learner, if that makes sense. Um, and so I really wish that I had um, developed better habits for, um, you know, learning information in a, a more comprehensive way and, uh, and problem solving, things like that early on and really trying to um, kind of spread out how, how I learned and not leaving things to the last minute and, and developing those habits, I think, um, because I had to figure that out in residency. Um, the problem in residency is you don't have the, the luxury of time to you know cram and memorize things and that type of learning really doesn't serve you well once you're taking care of patients and so um, I felt like when I started residency I had to relearn how to learn um, and really acquire information in a more meaningful way where it really stuck with me um, and so I think in medical school I wish that I had um, started to challenge myself a little bit more in how I was acquiring information and getting it to be something that, that I really digested and became um, more just knowledge um, so that, that would have I wouldn't have had to figure that out in the middle of residency. I mean, I'm personally keep that advice with me as I tend to lean more towards the procrastination, high stress, cram, and then, and then do it. So I will, I will definitely try to be more on top of yeah, it. Yeah, it's hard not to do, but yeah. at some point it definitely catches up with you, and, you, and you're going to wish that you, that you had better habits. So the earlier you can create those, I think, the better. Yeah. Well, Dr. Fetter, I appreciate you being on the podcast so much. Of course. Um, Thank I, you so much. If you guys enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review, share it on Twitter, and with a friend that you might think is interested. Until next time, run the outro.